Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series into Jonah. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. So we're going in a, through a series, going through the book of Jonah, and attempting to use this minor prophet to talk about evangelism and, and reaching the postmodern West. And simply put, the culture that we're experiencing today is, is more secular, it's more godless, it's more man-centered than it has ever been before. It is changing rapidly, and it is changing holistically on almost every level. And so evangelism needs to change from how it used to be from the time when my parents uh, grew up, my grandparents grew up. Things are, things are just different today than they were in the past. And there's a couple things in evangelism that really won't work anymore. Uh, one of those things is this conversation that goes something like this. I'm a Christian. I'm right. You're wrong. Let's talk about it. That doesn't go over really well for the next generation. Um, the, uh, the arrogant, overly pious approach to missions. There's, there's truth to the fact that we have a gospel message that is right. There's a way of the world that is wrong. But practically how we uh, bring that to fruition, how we work through those things, uh, takes a, a winsomeness, a wholeness, a, a caring about people that's much, much different. What also doesn't work really well is the prepackaged, memorized, kind of cookie-cutter approaches to evangelism that used to work in generations past. And no matter who you were talking to, no matter where they were, no matter their age or differences in life, you were going to essentially say the same thing to them no matter what. It was something like the bad news, the good news, are you ready to accept Jesus? Let's pray about it. Uh, those methods are, they can still work at times. There's, there's nothing in, inherently wrong with them. But for the most part, our culture is, is different than it used to be. Uh, you could have that conversation with somebody that, that understood, and as, you could assume they knew the difference between right and wrong. We don't know that in our culture anymore. You could have that conversation in a culture that understood something of the existence of God. We don't have that in our culture anymore. You could have that conversation with somebody who knew the difference between good and evil or, or evil and sin. And again, that's, that is gone in our culture. And so those, those things don't really work really well anymore in evangelism. And, and Jonah is this guy that comes on the scene. He goes to a completely different culture, a godless culture, brings the gospel in a, a very interesting, short way, almost reluctantly. He's the reluctant prophet. But he teaches us a lot about engaging Gentile, godless cultures, how to do that effectively, what not to do, and certainly we'll learn what to do. In 1951, Richard Niebuhr wrote a book that's a seminal work in reaching people with the gospel. In 1951, it's called Christ and Culture. And in it, he offers five different ways that Christians can intersect with the culture of today it's really become somewhat of a timeless resource, and I want to just address this uh, very briefly. One of the first things that Niebuhr suggests is a model of engaging the culture that's something like Christ against the culture. Some people look out at the world in which we live. They don't want that for themselves. They want to protect 
their families, their children from those things. And so here's what we do. We're going to retreat from the culture. We're going to build really big ivory tower, towers. We're going to hide behind those things. We're going to stay away from it as much as possible. And listen, at times, there is a place and a time to do that with certain elements. But for the most part, if we become so insulated to the world in which God has sent us to and called us to be on mission for and to, uh, we're going to lose the opportunities to bring people into and take our responsibility seriously to make disciples, to reach the lost and do the work of an evangelist. A second view of, of Christ in the culture is Christ of the culture. This view says that God is at work in the culture, and so we need to do our best to accommodate to it. This is a stance that sees some good value out in the culture. We can bring some of those cultural influences into the church. Uh, we can use the culture as a means for reaching them in some ways, but there's still somewhat of a hesitation. We're not going to go fully and just engage in the culture um, head and feet and everything holistically. The third view is that Niebuhr presents as Christ above the culture. In this, view, in this view, you build into the culture with Christian principles. Uh, yes, we're coming into a godless culture, but as a Christian, we can influence it. We can live in a way that is above the culture in our attempts to reach it. The fourth view is, is Christ and culture in paradox. This is what you'll often see in some of us experience this just in a daily routine and general, life in general. There is your church culture and there is your work culture. There's a culture that you exist in, live and breathe in on Sundays, maybe Wednesday nights, but then there's this other culture that's Monday through Saturday, and that's where you live. And so we, we artificially create this separation between that which is sacred and that which is secular. Some people truly believe that that's the best way to reach the culture. I think you're going to have a hard time with that in Scripture, but there's several models that embrace that. Finally, the view is, uh, fifth view is Christ transforming the culture, where, where our responsibility as Christians is to go into every aspect, no matter what it is, and transform it with the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're not uh, super hesitant about the culture. We're just plowing straight forward in there. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter how you're doing it. You're just going to go and transform the culture. Go, go, go. That's our responsibility, just to do that. And typically, churches end up picking one of these models among all five of them. They land somewhere on this. We might say you put these on a spectrum, and they land there. Probably the best answer is bits and pieces of all of them to some extent. But there's different ways. The reason why I'm showing you this is historically you can look back at the church and you can see different ways that Bible-believing, godly Christian men and women who have a desire to see people come to the Lord and trust Christ, that they have tried and attempted to engage families, people, workplaces with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we don't want to do is just say that all of this is absolutely wrong. I've got it all figured out. I'm going to do it my way. Learn from history. There are ways that people have engaged. They are become a student of culture in many ways, and, and we can become effective in it. Of course, the Holy Spirit has to do the work. One of Jonah's biggest issues when we run into Jonah chapter 1 is that he sees this culture in Nineveh. 
And he doesn't want any piece of it. In fact, he thinks that they don't deserve the love and the mercy of God in the Bible. And he doesn't want to go to this culture in, in any way. He's fighting against the call to go to Nineveh. Jonah, Jonah believed that he himself, his ethnicity, his nationality, his own morality was far superior to the Ninevites. He was a different breed of humanity. And as a result, he had a hard time evangelizing in the city and reaching the Ninevites and wanting to go to them. And Jonah needed to learn some hard lessons. All people are created in the image of God. And as Christians, we must humbly understand that some non-believers are really better than we are. I'll give you an instance of this. I'm a Christian. I'm saved by the grace of God, not by anything that I do, and certainly not by my morality. Some people out in the world are very, very moral people. They literally think that their morality is going to save them. They can be, their morals can be upwards of, of almost perfect, closer and closer to Jesus as they live their life. Because why? Because they're living that way, thinking that there's going to be some eternal value to it, that maybe they'll do more good than bad, and they'll have some kind of hope because of it. There are very, very moral people out there who don't know Jesus. In many ways, they're, they're good moral people. They're just lost. As, day is, as the day is long. There are other people out there who have an incredible work ethic. They'll spend the rest of their life comparing themselves to other people, proving their worth, going above and beyond in their workplace, in their school, and their grades, and whatever it might be, outworking other people. They're an incredible work ethic, and they're, they're good people. Why? Because they're created in the image of God. And God has given them uh, some understanding, some consciousness of who he is based on that. Being created in the image of God should help us to appreciate and value people, all people. No matter what walks of life, no matter their family background, no matter their nationality, no matter who they are right now, no matter what they're looking for for their identity, no matter what they're looking for for their security, for their hope and life, they are created in the image of God and so, therefore, we go to them because that's our responsibility. This week, what I want you to see is how much Jonah is totally against a culture. He's against a city, and therefore, it bled into that city, his desire not to go to it, and that people group as well. He convinced himself that he was so much better, he just didn't even want to go to him. No matter what God called him to, no matter what he was asking him to do, Jonah went the exact opposite way. First point in your outline this morning, first point in Jonah chapter 1. God's mission is central. Our responsibility is to engage it. God's mission is central, and so engage it. Look down at Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. Jonah, of course, goes away from the presence of the Lord, he goes down to Joppa to get away from him, and in verse 4 we pick this up as he is on the sea trying to flee from God's presence. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship 
and he had lain down and was fast asleep. And so the captain came to him, verse 6, and he said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we might not perish. I find it really interesting that the Lord is depicted here in the ESV. It says the Lord hurled a storm toward Jonah and toward the sailors of that ship. Most of the time when you see this verb hurled in the Old Testament, it's in the context of warfare. Remember when um, David came in and played the harp for Saul? And Saul got so angry at him, he picked up a spear and threw a spear at him. It was stuck in the wall. That's the same verb that you're seeing right here in Jonah chapter 1. Almost every time you see this verb, it's in the context of warfare, in the context of a warrior. It's as if God is being depicted as a divine warrior. Jonah is fleeing from the mission, and the divine warrior throws a spear at him. He throws a storm at him to get him to stop in his tracks, and he puts up all these obstacles for Jonah to go in his own way stop and turn around and come back to what God wanted him to do. You're going to see the same verb throughout chapter 1. Look at your, look at your text. Saw it in verse 4. It's again, it's in verse 5. They hurled the cargo, speaking of the, the sailors there. Skip down to verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Jonah, speaking to the sailors. Verse 12 again. Skip down to verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the seas ceased from its raging. It's a very strong, it's a graphic verb that's being utilized over and over again to enter into the drama of this story. We're not supposed to read this and think that all is well with Jonah right now. There is chaos, there is drama, there is angst, there is a battle going on between Jonah's will, Jonah's mission, and God's will and God's mission. In fact, it's, it's not just Jonah and God that are fighting here. It's, it's these two missions that are fighting against one another. Jonah is, is a, a self-preserving, man-centered mission that he thinks he knows what the best thing is to do. God gives him a divine mission, a God-centered mission, a self-sacrificial mission. One is self-preserving, the other one is life-giving and life-altering. But there's, there's one other literary marker that I want you to see in, in chapter 1 that really takes you all the way through the book of Jonah, and that's a really small adjective. All throughout this book, you're going to see the Hebrew word is gadol, it's great. Over and over again, you're going to see the same adjective, a great wind, a great storm, a great fish. In fact, 12 times in Jonah, you'll see it. In chapter 1, you saw it in verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. You saw it in verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind. You're going to see it in verse 10, the men were exceedingly afraid, they were greatly afraid. In verse 16 and verse 17, again, 12 times in the book of Jonah, you're going to see this word. Each time, depicting an obstacle or something that Jonah had to overcome in order to get on mission with God. Its frequency might be referring to the daunting task, the call that God had given to Jonah, the mission from God, a mission that Jonah desperately wanted to ignore and run away from. Um, a few weeks ago, our family took a, a vacation. We went down to the beach 
I guess as, as families do, you, you just go and you relax and you throw out a lawn chair and, and just lay out in the sun. It's a great time. It was extremely strenuous for me. I came back tired because of all the work that we were doing. It was, Marcia, no, not really. It was very restful, very peaceful. One thing I learned about the beach, you know, we don't have a ton of beaches here in Oklahoma, um, but one thing I learned about the beach is that no matter what you're doing, no matter where you're going, sand is everywhere. You take sand with you every time that you leave the beach. It gets in your bags, it gets in your britches, it gets in your boots, it gets everywhere. Uh, you go to your hotel, your hallway, any, any place you go, if you're on the beach, the sand is just, it's attached to you. And even if you go to those little faucets and you rinse off your feet and you rinse off your hands and you shake your towel, no matter what you do, the sand is attached. You're coming back. We came back all the way from the Florida-Alabama line to Oklahoma. We brought back half the beach with us. It was in the car. It was on our bodies. It was everywhere. The sand just, it attaches to everything. And I love what one of my, my favorite pastors has said. He says, all sin has a storm attached to it. You might not experience it right away, but all sin has a storm attached to it. Just like everywhere we went, no matter what we did, sand was attached to us, all sin has a storm attached to it. I find it very interesting that the harder Jonah tries to ignore God and run away from him, the more difficulty he faces because of his sin. Jonah is trying to run from God and from God's mission. That is an act of disobedience, and it is an act of sin from a prophet of God who you would least expect it from. And let me just clarify a few things before we go any farther. Scripture doesn't say that all difficulty in life is the result of sin. Sometimes we struggle in life, sometimes we go through difficulties because we live in a fallen world. Ask Job that question. He'll be the first one to tell you. Sometimes we experience things for no reason at all just because, again, we're in this, this fallen, sinful world that we live in. But all sin will bring difficulty into your life. You can bank on it. Sometimes we face storms in life as a consequence for our choices. Other times it's the result of living in this fallen, sinful world. But all sin has a storm attached to it. And Jonah's really fortunate that this storm comes immediately, progressively, and observably. He knows it. Almost immediately in this context, he knows that what he is doing is sinful against God. God's mission is central. Don't be like Jonah. Don't ignore it. Instead, engage it. Number two, God's presence is everywhere. Acknowledge it. God's presence is everywhere. Acknowledge it. Look down at verse seven. And they said to one another, speaking to the sailors here, come, let us cast lots that we might know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what of the people are you? Verse 9, he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said to him, what is this that you have done? And if you highlight or underline in your scriptures, I would encourage you to underline that phrase. 
What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, before we get too far in these verses, I want you just to notice the change in scenery. When we began Jonah at the beginning of chapter 1, Jonah got the call from God and he was on dry land. Even when he tried to run away from God, he went to the city of Jaffa. It's a, a harbor town there. And he was still on dry land. Now as we move into chapter 1, the rest of the story, the rest of this context, at least for the entire chapter, is in the sea. And so we've, we've shifted settings completely from the dry land to the sea. And it's important because of what Jonah says about God in verse 9. As you read below, just want you to hold on to that. The way the narrative is structured sets us up for an obvious and a very ironic contrast between Jonah, the great prophet of God, and those horrible, wicked, pagan sailors. Let's just take some time and let's compare these two people. In verse 7, the sailors are hungry for a revelation from God. They are thirsty for information, for divine information. How is this happening? What has brought it on? Jonah, on the other hand, he really doesn't care for any divine information. He's down in the bottom of the, of the boat, sleeping, indifferent to it. The sailors are frantically trying to preserve life. Jonah could care less about life, less about the sailor's life, and even, maybe even his own life. Again, he's sleeping. The sailors are repeatedly asking about the prophet. Do you find it interesting that a prophet of God, the mouthpiece of God, and they don't even know he's a prophet? They don't even know what his occupation is? He doesn't care to talk to him. The prophet says very little. The sailors are the ones that are talking more than anybody. The most notable contrast, however, is how Jonah describes himself versus how the narrator describes the sailors. And I want you to look at that barrage of questions that you saw back in verse 8. Tell us, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? The line of questioning brings out the, the urgency and the desperation of the sailors. They need this information so that they can act accordingly and respond appropriately. Jonah's response is, is absolutely hysterical. I'm a Hebrew. It's interesting that he mentions his ethnicity and his people group, his nationality, before he mentions anything else. Hey, Brad, what do you do for a living? I'm an American, man. I, okay, dude, but, I, I, man, asking what you do for a living. Uh, God bless America. Let's go. Maybe, maybe that's what Jonah thinks is the most valuable, is his country. In response, uh, Jonah was on, on land. He tried to run from God. Jonah was on the sea. He tried to run from God. And then he says, I fear the Lord who made the dry land and the sea. Really, Jonah? Do you really? Upon hearing Jonah's statement about God, the sailors were exceedingly afraid in verse 10. They feared a great fear. It's written in an intensive form in Hebrew. You're going to see that exact phrase in verse 16 when they actually physically repent and come to the Lord. These are, these are believers now after the experience that they go through. 
on the ship and with the prophet. But when Jonah says he fears the Lord, it's not, it's not the same construction as when the sailors fear the Lord. When Jonah says he fears the Lord, it just says he fears the Lord, and that's it. You read it just like you would in English, the way that it's, it's written in Hebrew. When the sailors fear the Lord, they exceedingly fear the Lord. They greatly fear the Lord. They feared the Lord with a great fear. Their fear is much more significant. It's much more powerful. It's much more palatable in every sense of the word. The pagans are acting more like the prophet, and the prophet is acting more like pagans. Jonah chapter 1. I want you to go back in your text and just read that one last question from the sailors. Verse 10. What is this that you have done? Does that, do you remember reading that anywhere else in the Bible? Interesting, when Abram and Sarai go about to the land of promise that God had called them to. Remember, he goes to the pagan king, and the pagan king says, who is this woman? It's my sister. Later on, he figures out that it's not his sister, it's his wife, and this pagan king asks Abram, what is this that you have done? The apple didn't fall far, too far from the tree because his son Isaac does the exact same thing, King Abimelech. Genesis chapter 26, tell him you're my sister. King figures out that's not your sister, that's actually your wife. The pagan king comes to Isaac, says, what is this that you have done? But there's one chapter that really sticks out. It's probably about five times in the Old Testament. You're going to see this exact question asked from pagans to what we would say are believers in those contexts. There's one time that that question comes from, comes from God. It's going to take you back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember when, when God approaches Adam and Eve after they had decided to sin and they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil like he asked them not to do? And God starts asking a line of questions. He finally comes to the woman, he comes to Eve, and he says to her, what is this that you have done? Theologically, when we say that God is omnipresent, what we mean is that he is present everywhere at all times with his whole being. God is here right now. There's no place you can go that God's presence is not there. In fact, Psalm 139, uh, one of my favorite psalms in the entire Bible, it's, uh, uh, David starts talking about the presence of the Lord, and he asks a lot of questions that encourage him and um, just enrich his life with God. It goes something like this. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If, my, if I took up the wings of the dawn and flew away from you, there you would be. If I went down to the gates of Hades, even there you would be with me. The light is darkness to you because God is everywhere. Even in the darkness, God is there. God's presence always brings great comfort to the people of God. Jonah, God's presence is not bringing him comfort at all. In fact, it's making him very uncomfortable. The prophet fleeing from the presence of God is, is ironic, and it does not make any sense whatsoever. It is illogical, because there is nowhere that you can go from the presence of God. And when we're on mission with God, he is also with us wherever we go. There is no place that God hasn't been, won't, will be, always is. 
God is everywhere all the time with his whole being. He is omnipresent. And because of that, when he calls us to mission to go somewhere, we can go and follow him with courage, truth, and comfort that he is there with us. He is working in people's hearts and lives beforehand to prepare them for the message that we can bring them. God's presence is everywhere, and so we acknowledge it. Number three, this morning, God's love is incomparable, and so act on it. God's love is incomparable, so act on it. I'm going to read the largest section here, verse 11. We'll go almost through the end of the chapter. Jonah 1, 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. Interesting, the, the sailors are more concerned about life than Jonah is even. They don't want to throw this guy into the sea because they know it, it would certainly mean his death, uh, likely, if, if they did. They rode hard, verse 13, to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew even more and more tempestuous against them. And therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah, they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. The men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Understand, too, that uh, when they make these sacrifices and vows to the Lord, it's after their deliverance, not before. The sailors don't do this to earn the good graces of God. They do it as a response to the grace of God that they have experienced. That's the difference between grace and religion every time. Either one of two things is going on in this passage. Perhaps Jonah is coming to repentance. There's nothing in the text that would indicate that, but in narrative literature, you can often entertain just different things that aren't there because a lot is there that we don't know about. Maybe Jonah is slowly coming to his senses. Maybe he's saying, you know what? These sailors are willing to preserve my life, I'm the one that should be more willing to preserve their life. And so, throw me into the sea, do this, and maybe God will respond to it. Maybe there's something good going on with Jonah in his heart here. Or Jonah could be saying, I'd rather die than go to Nineveh, throw me into the sea. Maybe that's how antagonistic he is to the call that God has put on his life. Which one? We really don't know. Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's a little bit of both. No idea. I want you to look at some interesting observations. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard. Your texts might say something different there. These, uh, these sailors are trying to get back to the land now, so they bring out the oars and they try to row as hard as they can to get back to the shore and away from this storm. Remember, this is after Jonah told him to hurl, them into this, hurl him into the sea. The, uh, the Hebrew verb for road hard is literally the sailors dug in. They were digging in with their oars and try to, trying to row back to the shore. It's very unusual. In the Old Testament, it will refer to digging into the ground 
or digging in through a wall is where you would see this most often. Um, probably a, a double entendre. There's probably two meanings here with this verb. On the one hand, the sailors are rowing hard to shore to try to save Jonah. On the other hand, they're digging a grave for Jonah because they're about to throw him in. Uh, literally, Jonah is digging a grave for himself. The sailors are just doing what they can do um, out of their own initiatives. The biblical principle behind this text is that our own efforts to strain against the wrath of God are futile. Our own efforts to strain against the wrath of God are absolutely 100% futile. The response to God's wrath is not digging in or doing anything. The response to God's wrath is dying because his wrath demands death. It demands blood. The answer is always to surrender and sacrifice, not to strain, not to stretch, not to strenuously do anything to fight against God, but just to sacrifice. God is always pleased with death to self in order to make the steps to come to him in repentance and faith and humility. I think this is one place in the book where Jonah is likely seen in a, in a very positive light as he's thrown into the sea and, and his life for the many is what's depicted. I love how one commentator put this. Jonah might only have been moved by pity, but often the first step in coming to one's senses spiritually is when we finally start thinking of somebody, anybody, other than ourselves. Maybe Jonah finally started thinking about somebody other than himself. Perhaps Jonah reasons something like this. Again, you guys are going to die for me. The reality is that I should be dying for you, and so throw me into the sea. And with that one act of submission, with that one act of surrender, of sacrifice, Jonah takes on the wrath of God, the waves of the wrath of God upon himself so that others don't have to face it for themselves. One theologian has put it this way, all life-changing love is some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. All life-changing love is some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. Whenever you keep a promise to your kids, to a coworker, to a boss, it's going to involve some kind of sacrifice. Parents, you know if you're going to raise your kids in a godly way, if you're going to teach them and instill the truths of Scripture into their lives, it's going to cost you. You're going to have to sacrifice of your time, your efforts over and over again. What's depicted here in Jonah chapter 1 reminds us of, of the Son of Man in Mark 10, verse 45. The Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that little word for means instead of, or in substitution for. My life for your life. My blood for your blood. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, it says that Jesus died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jonah comes out um, pretty good in chapter 1. At least he's come to an end of himself. And he preserves the life of many by taking on the wrath of God. It's a good picture of Christ and what he's done for us. God's mission is central. Engage it. God's presence is everywhere. Embrace it. Number three, God's love is incomparable. And so act on it. A couple points of application. Number one, you guys have heard me say this before. 
Such a great lesson from Jonah 1. Sin would have much fewer takers if its consequences occurred immediately. Sin would have much fewer takers if its consequences occurred immediately. Although Jonah experienced a storm for running from God's mission, he really was a recipient of God's grace and discipline and love in ways that he had no idea he was experiencing. Many days have elapsed in this story from the time that Jonah got that call, go to Nineveh and call out against that city, for their sin has come up to me. Many days have lapsed from the time that Jonah heard that call and went to Joppa. Many days have lapsed from the time he was in Joppa to the time that storm was on the sea. There is no doubt about it. But the narrative is structured in such a way that Jonah receives the call, immediately goes the other way, and therefore experiences the divine displeasure and the disciplinary action of God because of it. Unquestionably, God is pursuing him, trying to change his course Turn him around. Understand his grace in a way that he just doesn't get it right now. In many ways, Jonah is still too stubborn. He's still too hard-headed to respond and listen to God, which is, which is the point. Wandering from God is as pointless as it is painful. The, f- the quicker that we understand that, uh, the better it's going to go for us. Genesis 4 says that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. 1 Peter says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking someone to prounce on, seeking someone to devour. When God puts those roadblocks, those obstacles, those hindrances in your life in such a way that you can go no further, you've got to turn around and go the opposite way, Do yourself a favor, do some self-examination. Ask the Lord if there's something in your life that's not right with God. Prayerfully look into your heart and find out because I guarantee you this, sin would have much fewer takers if its consequences occurred immediately. Number two, all people are created in the image of God. Therefore, they are loved, valued, and significant in the eyes of God. Amen? Every single person is created in the image of God. Therefore, they are loved, valued, and significant in the eyes of God. Genesis 1.27 says this, God made man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male, him, male and female he created them. And that was a huge shock when it was written in the ancient Near East in a patriarchal dominated society. Women were less valuable than men. God created them equally in the image of God. There is no distinction when you get down to their value significance in the image of God in them. Jonah was viewing the Ninevites through the lens of prejudice, comparison, bias, when he should have been viewing them from the image of God. The very first things that you take from creation, mankind is different from everything else that God created. On the sixth day, it is drastically different than every other day where God created something. He created man in his image. They're totally distinct from every other life form, being, thing that exists. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. You, can, uh, you don't have to hold your place in, in Jonah. I just want to read a few verses in, in Romans 1 and... Um, 
try to drive this home. Romans 1, um, Paul is making a case that all of mankind is sinful, although we are created in the image of God. The image of God is scarred, almost beyond recognition because of sin. And therefore, uh, people are sinful and sinners in their lifestyle and their actions and the things that they do. Uh, Romans 1, verse 29. Paul now, in describing all humanity here, says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I was doing, I was doing pretty good, man, until I got to that phrase right there. Disobedient to parents. Man, my parents didn't know anything Disobedience of parents. Verse 31, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree. See, every, everybody, even apart from a saving knowledge, knows something of God's existence. Look at it, creation, and we have a God consciousness that he's given to us. That's, that's what it means to be created in the image of God. Verse 32, though they, know, they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And then there's, there's like this really weird shift when you get to chapter 2, right? So Paul spends all this time describing all these Gentile pagan people who don't know the Lord. But of course, in, in Romans, he's talking to believers. He's talking to both Jewish and Gentile believers, and then he, he addresses, after listing all those sins, all those descriptions of people apart from God, he says, therefore, does your, does your Bible says you there? You have no excuse. You, believer, have no excuse. Oh, man, every single one of you. I think the point is really clear. All of us, even believers, have no excuse if we judge. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you judge, the judge practices the very same things that you dislike in other people. So you're guilty too. Jonah's learning some hard lessons. Who's worthy for the gospel? Guess what? Nobody. <laughs> so we give it to everybody. All people are created in the image of God, therefore they are loved, valued, and significant in the eyes of God. And we treat them that way as Christians. We treat them that way in this city. It has to be that way. Number three, Jesus is the perfect Jonah. Jesus is the perfect Jonah. There's, a, there's another account in the Gospels about a guy, a prophet from God, who falls asleep at the bottom of a ship, right? You guys read this story? The waves and the sea is chaotic, and Jesus is just sleeping on a pillow, oblivious to everything. The disciples kind of come over to him, just like the sailors came over to Jonah, the captain of the ship. Look, man, don't you care that we are perishing? The disciples say to Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? But there's a, there's a big difference between Jonah and Jesus, right? 
Because in order for the sea to be calm in Jonah, they got to throw Jonah into the, into the chaos. They throw him into the sea, into the wrath of God. Jesus, all he does is he's like, all right, calm down, guys. Chill out for a second. Calm, be still. And then the storm is, and the sea is, is perfectly, um, perfectly calm. It goes away. Jesus spoke against the wrath of God. Jonah went into the wrath of God. Jesus' authority was, this was, Jesus was no ordinary prophet, right? He wasn't just like the prophets from the Old Testament. He superseded the prophets at, at every level with everything he did and everything he said. His authority was greater than the authority of the prophets. He can speak to the wind and the waves and make them calm. Jonah gets thrown into the wrath of God and makes it calm. But that's not the final story for Jesus, right? There will come a day when Jesus will get thrown into the wrath of God. Not on a sea, uh, but on a hill. We call it Calvary. He goes up and he sacrifices and he takes on completely the wrath of God on our behalf. Not one thing was left for Jesus to take on concerning the wrath of God than what he did. And the reason that we know that is because at the end of it, when he says, it is finished, and three days later when he rises from the grave and he, and he talks to people and he's touched and he's seen by the disciples, we know that the wrath of God was fully satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It wasn't fully satisfied with Jonah's sacrifice into the sea. Jesus is the perfect Jonah. Jesus succeeded where Jonah failed. He went to the people that God called him to, no questions asked, obediently the first time. Jesus gave his life for the wrath of God, for people, for us, because he loved us. And you can simply have a relationship with him if you would cry out, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. There's, there's one time in the Bible where a question is asked, what must we do to be saved? Brad, were you talking about that in Acts? Probably, probably good to listen to the answer on that one. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. Because Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He took the cost for us so that we might have life and have it forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, again, just thank you for this time. We can go through the book of Jonah. Thank you for the lessons that we can learn. Thank you that we can learn from others' mistakes. Lord, um, I pray that we would be um, cognizant, we would understand that all sin has a storm attached to it in some way or another. Some of us are probably going through some crazy storms right now. Sometimes it's not always just because of our actions. Sometimes it's just living in a fallen world. Um, Lord, but help us to understand the devastating effects of sin and choosing to willfully sin, even as believers. Help us to under, understand and see the consequences for those, those things. God, when uh, you give us people to talk to, when you give us opportunity to be a part of your mission and reach people with the truth of the gospel, Help us to run toward those situations, not away from them. Give us courage. Most of all, Lord, uh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the relationship that we can have because of his death and resurrection on the cross. 
And thank you that uh, he did all the hard part for us. Our, our response is simply to, to repent and to believe that we need a Savior, and we have one in Jesus. We thank you for the sacrifice of your Son that forgives us of all our sins, past, present, and future, that we might have everlasting life and life eternal with you. And it's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen.